welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh continues his series in the book of Romans. In this sermon, the topic of hypocrisy is discussed. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2 as Pastor Josh delivers his sermon titled, Hypocrisy Exposed. Let's turn our attention um, to Romans 2 here. Let's begin in verse 17. And then we have much, much to talk about, much to study. So begin reading with me, please. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who though having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Let's go to our Lord and ask for help. Oh, Father, Lord, we who are simply dust, and not only dust, but defiled dust, God, we come to you, the holy God, and we have absolutely no place to stand other than the blood and the resurrection of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing we can bring to you whereby you owe us. There is no good work. There is no inner righteousness, no goodness of heart, O God, that we can come and offer to you. We have nothing. We come with empty hands, only able to receive what you offer to us in the gospel. And so God, it's with a sense of desperation. It's with a sense of exasperation, oh God, that we come to you, throw ourselves at your feet and say, oh God, have mercy on us sinners. But Lord, we who are in Christ, God, you've raised us up. You've lifted our heads. You have given us hope. You have given us the hope of salvation and the kingdom to come. 
and all of your acceptance and an inheritance and God. So we have joy, but Lord, we come to you once again, humbling ourselves, wanting to draw near and needing your grace. And so God, right now we ask for it. God, my unworthy eyes don't even have the right to read your word, let alone to stand up here and preach and explain. So God, I beg for mercy. God, help me. Help me to rightly explain your word and all of us who are gathered here to know you, to draw near to you, our treasure. Give us, we pray, all of the grace that we'll need to understand your word, receive it, and then be transformed by it, oh God. Hallow your name. Magnify your name. Make the name of Jesus to be exalted to the highest place in our hearts. And then God, when we leave here, I pray that we'll go and and explain the message of Christ in a way that the fame and renown of Christ extends to the ends of the earth. So please, God, we beg, work these things. Give us help to understand the specific truths you have for us today. Where we need convicted, bring it upon us, oh God, and with weight. But where we need encouraged, where we need built up, where we need corrected in understanding, please God, work all of it. All of your miracles that happen when your word is worked. We trust you, God, and ask for the glory of your name. Please work among us. And we pray this through the name of Christ. Amen. A recent article in the Houston Tribune has been pretty devastating for our denomination. Now, I had determined about three weeks ago when this article hit that one way or the other, we were going to talk about this, whether it fit a passage of scripture or not. But it does happen to illustrate several of the truths that we're going to look at this morning here. The Houston Tribune conducted a a major investigation into Baptist churches following leads of scandal. And what they found was absolutely appalling and disgusting. Now, I want to preface this with the understanding. The number of churches that they found dirt on, so to speak, represents approximately 1% of the churches in the entire denomination. I don't say that to try to undo it. One scandal is too many, but to try to give some to try to give some perspective with it. But through their investigation, they discovered hundreds of victims of sexual abuse of various kinds, many of them involving children. It was such a shocking article that it's made its way into the national news. It's made its way into the the national conversation. In many ways, it has brought us low with grief and with this sense of asking the question, how does that happen? Some of the crimes, and this was what was the most scandalous and what is called the most attention, some of the crimes were committed by pastors and church leaders. Which leads us once again, just kind of throwing our hands out there going, how do you come to a place spiritually where you can commit vile acts like this and then still stand in front of a congregation and lead and even preach? How does this happen? This is the kind of thing that 
is oftentimes used by some to turn away from the church altogether. It is the definition of hypocrisy. And there's a lot to talk about with that. There are a few I want to mention that don't necessarily pertain to the text today, but I just want to bring up with us. For one, I want to remind you, Jesus warned us of these things. Jesus warned us that from amongst ourselves, Satan will plant tares among the wheat. That from amongst ourselves, savage wolves will arise who will devour the flock. You know, another aspect of this is our reaction to it. Many have been angry over the fact that the newspaper followed these leads and then printed the story. Because sure, I mean, let's be clear. It's not like the paper had godly motives in doing this. They desired to drag the name of Christ through the mud and mock the church. But I want to tell you, I am glad it has been exposed. Because it was there and we didn't know it. And if it was there, then by golly, let's rid it. Let's expose it, get it out there, make it nothing but a distant memory, cleanse that out, that old leaven, and let's come to purity before God. But there are some ways that this whole episode illustrates a lot of what scripture teaches and even truths from this passage right here. From, from what I've just told you, do you not now have a pretty glaringly clear picture of what hypocrisy is? From what I've just told you, do you not have clear pictures of what it means to pretend religion? You know, Jesus spoke to the Pharisees in the first century and pronounced words of rebuke against them. And in some of his words, which ring down through the centuries with a solemn kind of warning, he said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then he would mention some specific way they had faked godliness. The word hypocrite comes from a root word that means, uh, that refers to an actor, a stage player. It has the idea of someone who pretends godliness, fakes love for God, but inwardly refuses repentance, inwardly refuses to truly submit to God, and they hold on to secret sins. But is it also, is it not also clear from what I've just told you that some of the things we already knew, but still we need to see are evident. Things like just being a part of a church doesn't make you a Christian. Just being a pastor doesn't guarantee that you're right with God and safe from the judgment. You might be a part of a Christian church. But if you contradict what it means to be a part of a church, whatever benefit you would have received is undone by the hypocrisy. A, a pastor who is unconverted and holds on to sacred sins, if, if that pastor breaks the very essence of what it means to be a shepherd, then he undoes whatever benefit might have been there had he been faithful. All of that to say, being a part of a church and being in places of service presents an opportunity. But hypocrisy undoes the benefit. Hypocrisy is vile before men and disgusting to God. 
Well, in the passage that we're looking at this morning, God speaks to a group of people, the descendants of Abraham, that he had made covenants with, that he had given great opportunities to, and he tells them that simply because they were a part of the bloodline, simply because they were a part of a people does not guarantee that they were right with God. The central idea of this passage is is this. Your Jewishness, your circumcision, your possession of the law will not save you. And this is why you have broken the very law you possess. Now, you here this morning, you might say, isn't that what we just studied? And the answer is, well, partially, yes. We've begun to look at this. And so the same central idea carries on into this new section. But what's going to happen is we're taken further. Um, And and here's kind of how. In in verse 1 of chapter 2, God through Paul came and said, he spoke to the religious man. Chapter 1 was about the non-religious man, the pagan. Chapter 2 begins to address the religious man. And that would refer to both the Jew, but also to you and I who are in the church. There are certain temptations we face. And he addresses the religious man and says, you who judge others of their sin." You practice the same kinds of things. Therefore, you have no excuse, just like those who are practicing these have no excuse. But suppose a man said this to Paul. Paul, speak for yourself. I don't practice what the Gentiles do. I don't don't live like the pagans. I follow the law. Therefore, I'm safe. If someone said that to you, how would you respond? Well, this passage is how God does What God is going to do in this passage is give some specific examples that then expose hypocrisy and the need for a savior, the need for grace and not, and showing we cannot be right by our works. We are all in need of forgiveness of sins through the blood of Christ. And by the way, there are other places in scripture where God does the exact same thing as he's going to do here. Do you remember uh, the time when the rich young ruler claimed that he had kept the commandments of God? What did Jesus do? He exposed the love of money in the man's heart He had been hiding it. He had blinded his own eyes to it. God brought it right before him in a very glaring kind of way so that maybe for the first time he saw his own evil. What God does here in this passage is some ways that for for the religious man who thinks that his religion, his good works, his own merits of righteousness make him fit for heaven, satisfies God, makes him safe from the judgment, it's going to expose you have wickedness in your heart. You may not live like the pagans, but you have hypocrisy. And this hypocrisy is unclean to God. And what it means is, The same grace that the man worshiping idols needs, you need that same grace. You need Christ. There is no one who stands on his own before God. The only way you will stand is on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what this is doing is continuing to convince. We mentioned that the letter of Romans does this amazing job of arguing, of convincing things. You can tell someone a fact, but they may not believe you. 
If they don't believe the fact you tell them, what do you do? You try to break it down into simpler terms to show them and help walk them through the reasoning so that they see the in conclusion themselves. Well, this passage is an extension of the man who thinks that he is right with God on his own. And God is going to walk him through and show him his sin. And then in the last couple of verses, bring some new theology and explain some new things here. So, the outline. If you got your bulletin with you and you look at the back notes section, I took up all of your notes section with the outline. Uh, that is because I just kind of broke everything down. Not every passage breaks out so neatly and nicely. So I wanted to show it all there. So the highlighted portion is what we're making our way through today. The first two parts of this section. As I see the section, I see three parts to it numerous subpoints. We're going we're gonna to seek to make our way through the first two parts. And so here is the first one. You who bear the name Jew. Look at verse 17 again. But if you bear the name Jew, and then what happens is that a list of descriptors are given after this. Now, we've been saying from verse 1 of chapter 2 that this section is primarily addressed to the Jewish people. It, of course, has application uh, for us as well, but it has been primarily addressed to the Jewish people. But here, that's made just perfectly clear. He's going to be addressing aspects of their bloodline, aspects of the covenants that they'd been brought into. But before we go any further... Um, I, I feel a, a rabbit trail is, is necessary. There's something we need to make straight here. The criticisms, corrections, and even scolding that God will sometimes give to this group of people in scripture is, is number one, it's addressing errors that existed amongst most of the people, but not all. Always remember that there is always a remnant of those who are faithful to God. And so even in the book of Ezekiel, which we just finished reading a couple of weeks ago, which God has some pretty severe scolding that he gives to his people, always understand that there was a remnant within the group that did honor him. And so not every rebuke applied to every person. But then secondly, we remember this, and this is the biggest point I wanted to get to. God's correction and even scolding that occurs in scripture towards this group of people does not mean they are to be despised. And the reason why we got to say that is because throughout history, there has been a despising of this group that has come for all kinds of reasons. And some have even claimed religious reasons. And there have even been those claiming the name of Christ, whether or not they were truly Christians or not is up to God. But even claiming Christian reasons for their disgust of this group of people. And that's absurd. And it's a misunderstanding of scripture, but it has happened. You know, several places in scripture show Satan attacking this group of people, opposing this group of people. It is Satan's desire to destroy this group off the face of the earth. It is his desire to bring them into despair because God has chosen them for special plans. And by the way, sometimes it's an incredible study if you will do uh, through history 
tracking through history, the persecution against the Jewish people. It is astounding how much prophecy has been fulfilled throughout history. For instance, in things like in the 13th century in England, the Jewish people were banished from that place and for 365 years were not allowed to set foot on that island until the Reformation brought religious freedom. Isn't it amazing that hatred of this people still continues today? You cannot hardly go a week in the news without seeing some new story of anti-Semitism just recycling itself over and over and over again. And those who are doing the hatred have no idea that they are simply being used of Satan like previous centuries and peoples have over and over and over again. It's incredible that when we talk about this group of people, the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob, we're talking about a section of land that is less than a quarter of the size of the state of Indiana. Let that sink in. And yet the people from this land have spread out to every nation on the earth. That's not exaggerating. Even when we, when we go to Belize and study people groups, there's a Jewish population there in Belize. Every nation on the earth they have spread out to, been influential in this, just exactly like scripture says that they would. Like I, I just can't believe that the skeptic of the Bible isn't convinced from just this one element of prophecy as it has been fulfilled all the way through. The Jewish people have have been persecuted in literally every century since 700 BC. That's so astounding, it almost seems impossible, but, but it's not. But it is a reality that at times in history, even those claiming the name of Christ have developed disgust for this people group and even claimed it to be biblical. It is not. And so I just want to make clear before we study a passage that gives a rebuke and a correction that we not think that there is disgust that is happening here. That's not Paul's heart and it's not God's heart. Uh, later in chapter nine, Paul will say, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who were Israelites. In chapter 10, he says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. This is the heart of Paul and this is the heart of God. So, so let's not misunderstand what is happening here. Paul himself, that God is using to write this letter, is Jewish himself. He's not levying a hatred against this people. He is calling them to repentance. He's calling them to see things and to correct misunderstandings that they had about the scripture. And on that note, here's more. I don't know if you keep up in the, the national newspapers or this kind of thing, but if you do, then you know, it's just a hot topic. The fact that gospel believing Christians call the Jewish people to repent and to embrace Jesus, the son of God as the Messiah Lord and Savior. Um, it, 
it is oftentimes referred to as bigoted and hate-filled that we declare that you must be saved and Jesus is the answer. But you know, the reality is we're not just calling that one group, we're calling all of the nations, every people group on the planet to come and trust in Christ. But if you track this, it is just still a hot issue. It's just so controversial. But friends, don't you find this amazing? Here we are 2,000 years from the time Paul wrote the letter of Romans and we're in a culture that doesn't even really care about spiritual things. And here we are still talking about these things. Here we are still talking about the aspects of this passage that's going on right here. And if I could just for a moment address one potential question or objection that sometimes comes up when we study parts of the Bible that are kind of hard like this. There are sometimes those, it doesn't happen here. I've never heard it here because it's really unintelligent. I really don't think it would happen here. But those who object and say things like, why, why are we studying this? I'm not Jewish. So why, why are we studying this kind of thing? The first answer, which is applicable anytime someone raises an objection about why to study any passage from the Bible is, if God gave it, apparently you need it. God doesn't give useless information. But secondly, and I mean this as a big point, God has chosen to reveal the riches of the gospel in this way in order for the nations of men and even the armies of angels to understand the riches of God's mercy, this is the way God revealed these things. You need this. In Genesis 3, when God makes the promise that he is going to fix what was broken, redeem what had been put into slavery. And God spoke to Eve and said, it's going to come through one of your sons. And we asked the question, all right, how's it going to happen, God? How are you going to fix all this? How are you going to set all things right? The answer is this. The answer is God has chosen to work through a people. And then God has given that information and truth through to all of the nations of the earth. If you want to understand the gospel, you got to understand this how God has brought about the redemption in Christ. I've showed up to some Bible studies before and opened up to a place like Leviticus or something like that and was going to give an explanation of how we as Christians understand this kind of thing. And I've been met with some of that, oh, really, pastor? Like, we're gonna, why don't you just tell me how to be a better dad? Why don't you just, this kind of thing. L listen to me. This is the storyline. You're claiming to be a Christian. This is the storyline about how God delivered your soul from the flames of an everlasting tormenting hell. And you're gonna tell me you don't care about this? I think that exposes something going wrong on the inside here. This is how God has revealed the riches of the gospel. To understand God, understand Christ, understand the gospel, we need this right here. So after that long introduction, let's begin. <laughs> Verse 17, if you bear the name Jew. What then happens is he gives a list of descriptors. There are actually 10 of them. 10 descriptors that apply to this group of people. And, and what each of them are, they were in this day and still continue to be for some Reasons why this group of people felt superior over others. Now listen, God had done special things for this group of people. 
There should have been joy, but, but a humble joy, a, a humble gratitude that recognized all of the good that they had received was not because of any worth inside of them. God even speaks to them in the Old Testament and says, I didn't choose you because you were holy. I didn't choose you because you were greater than other people's. I chose you in my kindness. There was supposed to be this understanding that they had received grace from God and not because God owed them something. And all of these things that he lists, knowing his will and approving the right kinds of things, they were all ways that this community exalted themselves and they said in some ways, we're the people who have the law. We're the people that God gave circumcision to. And that was true. But the part they misunderstood was what these things meant and what the purpose of these were. To go ahead and just sort of tell you, what we're shown in Scripture is the purpose of the law for that people and for us as well. The law of God we have in our hearts and the access to the Scriptures we have of the commandments of God are meant to expose our own evil inside of our hearts. That when we read the law of God, we see over and over again how much I do not measure up. But instead of that happening, what happens sometimes in the church and what happened oftentimes with this group of people is that they would study the Bible and come away feeling puffed up and superior. They did not allow the law to have its right effect. They manipulated the meaning so as to feel exalted and righteous in themselves. That is what is being addressed here. There was boasting in their bloodline, boasting in what God had given them. But one of the things that we see in scripture, their boasting in their bloodline would be about as accurate as a woman with blue eyes boasting in her blueness. What do you have that you did not receive? They had not earned any righteousness with this. The Jewish people boasted in their name. They boasted in their distinctiveness from the rest of the nations. And he gives this list of descriptors there. There are 10 of them and they are divided into two groups. If you see that there in your outline, the first group refers to what ways that they had personally received the law. And there are five of them. They relied on the law. They boasted in having the true God. They knew his will. They approved the right things. They're instructed out of the law. Well, let's just make it clear. All of those were good things to know God's will. It's a great thing to approve the right things. That's a good thing. The problem was not in the things. The problem was in what they did with the things. They used them to feel righteous rather than let the law do what it was meant to do. The second category are things that they did with the law towards others. And so if you look down through the text there, there's another five of them. They were confident that they were guides to the blind, a light to those in darkness. They believed they were correctors of the foolish, teachers of the immature, and that in the law they possessed the embodiment of knowledge. Again, all of those were good. The problem is in the fact that they believed they kept the law because they taught the law. They believed they satisfied God because they were the custodians of the law. We actually have writings that exist from this era 
And we see that it was a common thing that was taught. They believed they satisfied God because they were his agent of making the law known to the rest of the nations. They believed this is what made them right with God. And so from this first point, let me just bring a little bit of application to us. You and I here this morning, if you read the scriptures and feel puffed up about how spiritual you are, you're misunderstanding the very scriptures that you read. You know, it's a, very, it's a very possible thing to show up here on a Sunday morning and gather together with, worship, with other believers to worship, meet with the living God, and to leave here feeling better than others. To maybe even drive down the road and see some people who didn't go to church and think to yourself, huh, imbeciles. And just really feel exalted in yourself. If that happens, the exact opposite of what was supposed to happen at church, gather with God's people, has happened. If we engage in worship and come away feeling exalted, the word has not had the effect it was supposed to have. The word is meant to drive us to humility and not unto misery, but unto joy and gratitude in the salvation that we have. But salvation recognizing, I don't deserve this. I've received it by grace. Friends, self-confidence, self-righteousness, and spiritual arrogance are a real temptation every single Sunday that you come here but also every single day that you open your Bible or spend time with God. But it is the exact opposite place that God intends to bring us. God intends to bring us deeper and deeper into humble gratitude and glorying in the cross of Christ, which has delivered us out of our sin. Well, here's part number two. You who teach others break your own teaching. Look at verse 21 there again. The first part, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Remember what the main point here is and how he's going to expose it. They were believing that their bloodline saved them, that just having the law satisfied God. But what he begins to say here is this, to sum it up, you have the law and you teach the law. That's great. But you also break the very law you boast in. And that's not great. And it means that you are undoing the benefit you could have had. And then he uses four examples. So four specifics. The first one, uh, look at verse 21 again, the second part there. You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? In the first century, theft was actually pretty common not really the kind of breaking into someone's house or something like this, but the Bible addresses numerous times theft that would happen in the marketplace. We see examples of times where um, uh, certain folks would have two sets of scales. One set of scales that were accurate and then another scale that gave them the benefit. They sold less grain for the same price of money and things. They would cheat people out of those couple dozen ounces or so. And perhaps Paul has something like that in mind because it was a very common practice. Here's the second example. Look at verse 22. You who say that one should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? If you remember, Jesus spent a lot of time addressing this aspect right here because it had become a common practice, especially amongst the Pharisees. The Pharisees often taught, 
that it was totally okay with God if you were married to a woman, saw another woman you were attracted to, divorced the first one, married the second one, and then you were with her. They said, you haven't broken the law because you were married when you slept with this new woman. And Jesus, remember, he addressed this and corrected and said, you are breaking the seventh commandment because God means for marriage to be a lifelong covenant. Therefore, even if you are married when you sleep with this new woman, it is still adultery. Perhaps this is one of the reasons that it is brought up here in this point, because it's a way they tried to find a loophole in the law. Here's the third example he gives. Verse 22 again, last part. You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? This is an interesting one. Many of the Jews in their religious zeal hated the existence of idols. That's a good thing. You should too. But here's another place where there was sort of a, a loophole they found. What they would sometimes reason with themselves is this. Well, God hates idols and I hate idols because I'm zealous for God. So I'm going to go destroy this idol over in the next town. But while I'm at it, Hey, you know, God hates idols anyways, so I'll take the gold for myself. And so there were some who actually would go and destroy idols in the name of zeal for God, but then really took the money home for themselves and so accumulated wealth for themselves, which of course is exposing the breaking of the law that they were doing. So he uses those three examples there. And before we, before we get to this last part where he kind of sums it up, let me just interject something here. Suppose someone said to Paul, now wait a second, Paul, I don't steal. I've been married to the same woman my whole life and I've never robbed a temple. What are you trying to say? Do you have anything to say to me? Am I righteous by the law? I think there are two ways that we could respond to that biblically. Here's, here's the first one. Um, let, me blow, let me blow your mind a little bit here. There's a pastor in Louisville just an hour and a half from here, who owns and operates a strip club. Not a joke. Not a joke. That's real. That actually exists. Now you're repulsed by that, right? You should be. And you might say, okay, well, that's really bad and gross, but I don't see how that applies to me. Well, can we not at least draw this observation like we did at the beginning? Being a pastor does not guarantee that you are right with God. Going to church does not guarantee that you have satisfied God. And so one way to respond to this is that even if some of those who are reading this hadn't done those things, the fact that there were Jews who had done these things at least proves this point. Just being a Jew doesn't save you. Just the same as we might say to a pastor, I certainly hope you've never done that, but it at least proves this point. Just being a pastor doesn't make you right with God. And just being in a church doesn't make you right with God. So even the existence of it proves the point. But secondly, secondly, you might not have done these three things. I think biblically we could argue that every person has broken at least two of these because Jesus says that even lusting with the eyes and with the heart is adultery of the heart and stealing theft can happen in many, many kinds of ways. But okay, you're saying you've never done these. This is what you do need to see. There are ways you have broken the very law you claim to hold. There are ways, there are aspects of the scriptures that you teach, you believe, and yet you have broken them. And so it shows this. It's not the teaching of the word that saves you. 
listen to me, Christian. It's not the teaching of the gospel that saves you. You can go back with our little kids and tell them a great Bible story and accurately and faithfully communicate the text and yet be unconverted. Teaching the Bible doesn't mean you are saved. If you're going to be righteous based on law, he is saying to them, you would have had to have kept every jot and tittle and every single aspect. And then there's one last thing that he says that kind of summarizes the whole thing. Look at, the, look at verse 23 with me. You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? And then in verse 24, he quotes a verse from the Old Testament. Remember, he keeps doing that. One of the things that he is showing over and over again is this part is not new. God has been showing this all along. You already believe this verse. So let me quote it and remind you of it. Verse 24, for the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Here's the point that he makes. You boast in the law and yet you break the law. You teach it. You're a part of the people that has it and you're a part of the people that teaches it and you feel exalted by it. Yet you break it. And when you break it, you dishonor God and you actually, you actually are a source of the blaspheming of the name of God. You know, when you and I as a Christian sin, we dishonor God. One way is that even if nobody ever finds out about it, we have displeased our God, but the enemy sees it. The angels see it and grieve over the sin of his people. But another major way that we dishonor God in sin is if people from the world see it. Because what happens when that takes place? What happens when the world sees Christians' sin? They use it as yet another excuse to hate the church. They use it as yet one more bullet in their, in their ammunition of attack against Christianity and to say, look, y'all are the same, y'all are just exactly the same. Y'all are just a bunch of hypocrites. And it actually gives more justification for the unbeliever to reject God. Now, now, now listen, so that we understand this. Don't ever think that that's legitimate. Unbelievers will do that. But don't think that the unbeliever is going to come to the day of judgment and, and answer to God for why they didn't trust in Christ and go, hey, I saw Christian sin and God go, well, you know, you got me there. I guess, I guess, I guess you're right. That's not how it's going to go. It is illegitimate for unbelievers to see the sin of Christians and then to come to the conclusion that Christianity cannot be true. Listen to me. The existence of wolves doesn't mean there's no such thing as a sheep. The existence of false brethren doesn't mean that there's no such thing as the true people of God. It's not a legitimate excuse, but still yet, even though that is the case, God does not want his people giving that kind of opportunity to the world. We're told in the Sermon on the Mount to live a life of good deeds. And when the world sees our good works in their hearts, even if they don't want to, there will be a recognition. That's the wisdom of God. That's good. And it shows his glory. But when we sin and live in patterns of that sin, we do what we oftentimes call ruining our witness. Because we make Christ, we, we rob Christ of glory and we make him look ridiculous. This is actually one of the reasons why God instructs church discipline. 
If we let perpetual sin remain, the world looks in at the church and has yet another reason to say, look, look, they're all the same and they blaspheme God. The verse that he quotes here from the Old Testament is from Isaiah 52. In that passage, God explains that all the nations who were surrounding Israel at the time, they knew the stories of their history and Israel's identity was marked by the God they worshiped. Their identity was wrapped up in that they worshiped the God of heaven, the God who created all things, the one true and living God. But the way that they lived gave opportunities for the surrounding nations to look in and to say, your God must not be all that special if you live like that. There are even times where God spoke to Israel and said, you've even become worse than the pagan nations around you. Even those who live in lawlessness, they look in and they're disgusted by some of your practices. You are causing the blaspheming of my name. And that's why in the book of Ezekiel, which we just finished up, we spent about a year reading through the book of Ezekiel there. How many times did we see that phrase? Then you will know that I am the Lord. And then there were times God said, then they will know that I am the Lord. God said this, you have lived for centuries in a way that disgraces my name and the nations are blaspheming me. I'm going to judge you and I'm going to do it publicly. I'm going to do it in a way that they see I don't tolerate sin and then they will know that I am the Lord. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. By the way, Christian, there's obviously quite a bit of warning here for us. The, the people you work with, your neighbors, they are coming to judgments about the validity of Christianity based on what they see in your life. Let me tell you the most important group who is making, um, coming to evaluations on the validity of Christ based on your life. It's the people who live in the same home as you. Parents, your little ones, they are coming to conclusions about Jesus and the gospel. They don't know they're doing it. They're not reasoning all that out, but it's a happening. They're coming to conclusions on Jesus based on what they see in your life. And I just want to tell you right now, I think children are like hypocrisy detectors. I, I, I think of anybody in the world, children pick up on hypocrisy quicker than anything else. And it is ugly. And that is one of the reasons why legalism and self-righteous religion has the horrid effect of breaking up families like it does. Hypocrisy is ugly. And it causes children to grow up and not want anything to do with this disgusting religion. Or maybe even worse, to embrace the hypocrisy for themselves and live in it. Remember, Jesus said this, listen very carefully. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Friends, there is an address there on numerous aspects of Christianity, but Christian parents, you better understand, Jesus is talking to us there. 
on the day of judgment would have been better had we hung a large rock from our neck and tossed ourselves into the sea than to be a stumbling block of hypocrisy or otherwise to our children. The stumbling blocks are all the ways that by our sin, by our foolishness, we lead people away from Christ rather than towards him. What a solemn warning. What do the people in your life think about the gospel because of you? What do you need to change? What apologies do you need to make? What confession of sin do you need to make to others in order to undo some of the ways that you might have wronged Christ. Hypocrisy is one of the most ugly things we could participate in the world. But let me bring a last application here and and connect it to the main point. Anytime we talk about hypocrisy, there's application for not only those who are unconverted, and that is primarily who he is addressing, but there's also application for us in a church family who are converted, but who can still slip into hypocrisy. But I do want you to understand that the main emphasis here is speaking to those religious folks, but who have not trusted in Christ because they think their religion makes them right with God. Maybe I could reword the text a little bit like this if you'll allow me a little bit of creative license. But if you bear the name Christian or bear the name Baptist or Calvinist or Reformed or seminary student or pastor or deacon, if you bear the name Christian and rely upon your religion and boast in your church and know right doctrine, and approve the right views of marriage and abortion, being instructed out of the gospel, and are confident that you are a light to this nation, you have the answers. You, therefore, who tell others that they need Jesus, have you yourself come to him? I'm not asking, have you put your faith in church? I'm not asking, have you trusted in your religion or in the fact that you know a lot of the Bible and right doctrine? I am asking you, have you personally turned to the person of the Lord Jesus, verbalized the words, Jesus is Lord, and ask him to save you? Friends, I'm just being real with you. There is such a danger There are so many wrong ways that are taught about how to be saved. And I mean, it happens even in churches that know better and that you might think of as good churches. You know that there are churches who teach things like if a baby is baptized, well, then it makes them right with God. Or the day you were confirmed, that's when you became right with God. But you might also think that the day you got baptized in this church was the day you became right with God. There are also ways that people wrongly explain the gospel to give the idea that if you believe certain beliefs, certain doctrines, that this saves you. For instance, have you ever heard anyone tell you, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, you will be saved? Have you ever heard that? Did you know that is nowhere in the Bible? And that is leading you away from Christ? There is no place in the Bible where we are told, if you believe Jesus died for your sins, you will be saved. What does the Bible call us to trust in? Christ himself. 
Do you need to know that Jesus died for your sins? Absolutely. But you are not saved by believing a statement that I make. You must come to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn your heart to him. Call out to him. Not believe words. Believe in him. Trust Christ. Jesus said, come to me. Believe on Christ and you will be saved. And thankfully, the Bible tells us that whoever, Jew or Gentile, religious or non-religious, thief on the cross or Sunday school kid, you call out to the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust in him and you will be saved. If you want to talk about that before you leave, please find me. Don't leave here without knowing where you stand with God. I'm going to be at the back having conversations and things. Just come find me and talk and I'll show you more from scripture. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for Christ. God, I ask that you keep us from being hypocrites. We know, God, that in some way, we're all going to participate it. Every human on earth participates in it in some way. But God, deliver us out of it. Deliver us out of trusting in ourselves. D deliver... Deliver any in this room that have been believing that because they do church that they're right with you. Show them their need of conversion, of the new birth. But God, also every Christian in our church, that we have a tendency to feel superior over others. Deliver us out of this, oh God. Make us a humble people who live in gratitude and joy over what you have done. Bless us, God, we pray as we leave. Give us your grace so that we will live lives worthy of the gospel. We ask these things through Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Have a great week. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed Pastor Josh LaGrange's sermon titled Hypocrisy Exposed. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.